0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation... There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Bernard Madoff, the largest swindle in financial history, and its shocking aftermath. Now let's continue with our story about Bernie Madoff. In 2001... Some of the mystery around Bernie Madoff and his firm was clarified by a hedge fund industry magazine writer named Michael Okrant, who not only discussed Madoff's alleged strategies, but his fee structure and minimal transparency. It specifically asserted that Madoff had $6 billion under management and consulted with other industry experts who did question Madoff's consistently high returns, but also stopped way short of any allegations of skullduggery. Madoff agreed to be interviewed for the piece, dismissed any skepticism, allowed full access to his trading floor, even escorting the writer during this process, and repeatedly emphasized the quality of his broker-dealership operation that he called his core strength. In fact, a year earlier, Madoff had agreed to establish a new trading system called Primex with four other Wall Street investment houses. His four partners... Goldman Sachs, Solomon Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch, and Morgan Stanley. This article was quickly followed up by another piece in the much more formidable business publication, Barron's, written by Aaron Arvidland. Again, although not accusatory, it was certainly skeptical of Madoff with similarly specific questions. Madoff's response to these articles was to have Frank Pascali construct a fake in-house computer terminal that supposedly was a trading platform connected to other trading counterparties. In fact, it was connected to another employee's in-house terminal, hidden in another part of the office. All of these simulated trades, completely bogus. Another Pascali creation was a supposed live screen of an account at the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation known as the DTC, where securities owned by Madoff purchased during alleged trades were being held in his account. The fake reproduced the DTC's logo, fonts, formats, even the type of paper used for actual DTC reports. Madoff proactively reached out to some of his biggest clients, especially Fairfield Greenwich, to have them perform a due diligence examination of his operation, with these props playing a central role. Jeffrey Tucker emerged from such a meeting, choreographed by Bernie, completely convinced that Madoff was on the level. Most of Madoff's other major clients never even bothered to take him up on his due diligence offer. But if many of Madoff's clients were happy to not question his returns and process, the cynical, highly competitive, and data-driven world of Wall Street always invited scrutiny of its biggest stars, even if this was the result of envy or alienation. In Harry Markopolis, one found an individual motivated by both marketplace rejection and a competitively brilliant grasp of financial marketplace analytics. In 1999, Markopolis was employed as a portfolio manager by Rampart Investment Management, a small Boston, Massachusetts, options trading shop that managed a modest amount of money. Markopolis was quite familiar with Bernie Madoff, his firm having marketed a split-strike conversion product that he helped develop. Unfortunately, the product did not generate particularly good returns and was eventually scrapped. Markopoulos, additionally both intrigued and frustrated by repeated stories of the phenomenal performance generated by Bernie Madoff. If you're so smart, why the hell can't you do what Bernie does? His hard-boiled Boston sales compatriots constantly needled him. To a quant like Harry Markopoulos, this was the ultimate put-down and challenge, but there wasn't much he could substantively do about it. That changed when a senior co-worker named Frank Casey returned from a New York sales call he had taken with René Thierry Magrand de la Houchet at Access International Advisors. Houchet not only managed money for some of Europe's most high-profile aristocrats, he was literally a member of the French nobility himself. In his 60s, he was a client of Bernie Madoff since 1985 and rebuffed Casey's sales pitch with glowing accounts of Madoff's consistent high returns and reporting process that purported to send daily updates of all transactions performed on behalf of Access's accounts. Casey then played the only sales card he had left, while Renee Thierry allowed Madoff to hold the securities he purchased on Access's behalf himself as opposed to a third-party custodian, which was required for registered investment managers. ville answer was simple. Bernie Madoff wasn't a registered money manager, so he was not required to do so, and the Frenchman was dismissive of any of Casey's concern, saying he trusted Madoff implicitly. The meeting quickly terminated, with at least ville providing a copy of his returns and portfolio performance. Casey subsequently got seven years of such performance from Broyhill Securities' All-Weather Fund, another made-off feeder fund, and tossed this information on Markopoulos' desk. Markopoulos first took a look at the straight-line upward trajectory of seven years of Broyhill's monthly returns. Within five minutes, he pointed out to his colleague that in the options markets that mimicked the general stock market, it was impossible— To not have months that were negative, a strong indicator that the results were illegitimate. Within four hours, Markopoulos extracted some of the specific stocks Madoff was allegedly buying in conjunction with the options that were part of his supposed split-strike strategy. He quickly found that the stocks mentioned did not actually track with Madoff's performance. Even more glaring, he compared Madoff's alleged purchase of options contracts to actual options sales numbers posted in the Wall Street Journal. On many occasions, Madoff purported to have bought more options than were even in circulation on any specific day. An impossibility. Markopoulos then contacted various high-level options traders at the Chicago Board of Trade, the type of high-level dealers who Madoff would have to be doing business with to execute the types of large options trades he was allegedly making. None had any dealings with Madoff. Markopolis believed he was on to something, perhaps the biggest fraud in financial history. He even had a high-level investigative contact at the local Boston office of the SEC, who set up a meeting with the office's senior enforcement officer. Subsequent to this sit-down, Markopoulos and his allegations went nowhere, the senior enforcement lawyer overwhelmed by Harry's extremely complicated analysis and probably the first of many government officials reluctant to smear one of the biggest names on Wall Street. The office had promised his SEC co-worker who set up the meeting that he would forward the tip to New York. He actually never did and this official Grant Ward eventually denied ever even meeting with Markopoulos, despite a subsequent investigation proving that as incorrect. Eventually, Markopoulos' initial contact was able to get the information forwarded to the SEC's New York office, where it was reviewed by an assistant regional enforcement director on or around April 3, 2001. The allegations were deemed unsubstantiated and dismissed with the written comment, quote, I don't think we should pursue this matter further, unquote. For the moment, Harry Markopoulos faced a brick wall. Following the turmoil of 9-11 and the bursting Internet stock bubble, Wall Street roared back to life in the aftermath of both of these events. But Harry Markopoulos was not the only skeptic of Bernie Madoff, who continued to pile up assets from ever-increasing conduits including self-directed IRAs, union and public pension funds, Some were investors who got close enough to Bernie to ask questions and were unsatisfied with his vague answers. Some, like Credit Suisse and investment advisory firm Rogers Casey, disliked Madoff's practice of not using a third-party custodian to house any purchased securities, knowing that any records he provided were therefore meaningless. More than a few firms merely blacklisted Madoff as a potential money manager for their clients or funds, but they did not take the additional step of contacting anyone at the SEC or even FBI to investigate the matter, a classic case of not wanting to get involved. In April of 2005, two SEC examiners were actually sent on an official audit of Madoff's firm that was generated when a routine SEC audit of another hedge fund uncovered emails that reiterated a lot of the concerns about Madoff expressed in the press and included the anecdotal information that an ex-Madoff trader indicated Bernie was headed for imminent trouble. These two SEC examiners, William Ostro and Peter Lamore spent weeks in Madoff's lipstick-building offices, reviewing various expense ledgers, business-related bills and expense accounts, emails, and very little having to do with either Madoff's broker-dealership or his portfolio management business. Their mere presence was enough to irritate Madoff, who insisted on dealing with them personally. Usually, some mid-level compliance officer is tasked with babysitting these kinds of official inquiries. The examiners finally got around to what was suspected to be Madoff's M.O., front-running trades or somehow cherry-picking orders and assigning the most profitable to his own managed accounts. Unfortunately, in the high-speed computerized world of securities trading, such a scheme was, in 2005, extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pull off. Eventually, Ostro and Lamore began asking pointed questions about front-running, what other hedge funds Madoff traded for specifically, and even presented Madoff with the Baron's article itself. Throughout this, Madoff remained composed, almost condescending, minimizing any hedge fund involvement, saying that some firms used an algorithm he developed that he had ceased trading in options a year earlier, actually as a ruse because Di couldn't fake options trades and that he had cleared up much of the baron's misconceptions in 2003 with a high-level SEC administrator who had asked him several questions about the article, which was true. This previous discussion was cursory, but in 2005, the two examiners didn't know that. Madoff was convincing, and the SEC examiners and their supervision didn't really know what they were looking for, and it became apparent that his broker-dealership was not front-running. They closed the investigation. Within weeks of dodging the SEC, Madoff was confronted with another external development that instigated a torrent of demand redemptions. On September 1, 2005, after abruptly announcing the shutdown of his hedge fund in July, Samuel Israel III was accused of running a Ponzi scheme to the tune of $400 million. He and the CFO of the former Bayou Group eventually received lengthy jail terms for fraud despite the firm's stellar reputation and supposed regulatory compliance confirmed by annual audit from a reputable accounting entity. Some of Bernie Madoff's investors lost money with Bayou, Other investors became wary of the entire money management industry, and a veritable run on Madoff's bank account, even from loyal customers like Fairfield Greenwich, depleted his liquid assets to $13 million by early November of 2006. On November 2nd, Madoff was also looking at $115 million in redemption requests, which if he failed to meet would be the end of his Ponzi scheme. To head off this crisis, Madoff scraped up some assets from his broker dealership, but the bulk of the money he paid out came from putting up some bonds in Carl Shapiro's account for collateral to take out a $95 million bank loan. This maneuver engineered by long-term Madoff employee and alleged director and behind-the-scenes operations manager Dan Bonventure, who had already falsified accounting records for years, But, for the moment, the redemptions were paid and the immediate crisis averted. Madoff's respite was short-lived when gadfly Harry Markopoulos took another stab at unmasking what he felt to be a blatant fraud. With a provocative 19-page detailed presentation entitled, The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud, Markopoulos again made a presentation to enforcement within the SEC offices in Boston. This time, he was able to prompt alarm bells, especially because he focused on Madoff as a fraud that potentially involved the loss of billions of dollars as opposed to technical violations that at least would leave most assets intact. But Boston SEC had no choice but to again hand the investigation over to New York SEC as Madoff operated within that jurisdiction. Again, Markopolis's quant personality, both dismissive and grating, got him off on the wrong foot with New York investigators, who he immediately alienated. Markopoulos clashed with branch supervisor Megan Chung, who disliked him, especially when Markopoulos also began to prematurely discuss his entitlement to a whistleblower award should a fraud be uncovered. Despite this antipathy, Markopolis's information did prompt an investigation, and New York SEC decided it might be appropriate to speak with some of Madoff's largest clients about his specific investment practices. During this process, voluminous records were requested and provided by Fairfield Greenwich Group including statements which indicated that Madoff, at least for Fairfield Greenwich Group, was still trading in options, an assertion at odds with what Madoff had told SEC investigators previously. Despite the confirmation by Fairfield Greenwich that Madoff had indeed claimed to be trading in options on their behalf, the SEC never attempted to ascertain whether this was true. Had They contacted any of the obvious firms trading in these options, It would have been game over, as such an investigation would have proven that Madoff had conducted no such transactions. But the SEC never went that route. Instead, they asked Madoff for a list of all the accounts that he used to execute all of his trades, a list that could have blown up his fraud as well. Madoff had no choice but to comply, which he did in February of 2006, supplying a six-page list of all of the supposed financial concerns that executed trades on behalf of his money management firm. He even included his DTC Clearinghouse account number, another potential Madoff minefield for anyone even remotely paying attention. The Megan Chung-led investigation drafted letters to send to to such institutions including Barclays Bank and Bank of New York, formally asking these banks to affirm specifically if they executed trades on Madoff's behalf. The letters were never sent. FINRA, a financial industry regulatory body, was contacted, given a specific date, and asked to confirm alleged Madoff option trades on this day. It responded that there was no record of Madoff trading any options on this date. A huge red flag, but still no SEC light bulb went on. Chung and her fellow investigators seemed to find it impossible that such a respected Wall Street figure could be a fraud. In May of 2006, Chung and four SEC staffers met with Madoff personally. Though his demeanor was calm, confident, even relaxed, as he waxed eloquently on his methods, strategies, and investment philosophies, He did respond with at least one obvious whopper of a lie that easily could have been another game-over moment. When asked about his DTC account, he answered that this was the account his firm used to settle transactions on behalf of his firm. But he also added when asked that his clients had unique accounts used to settle trades and hold securities on their behalf, a lie in that no such trades ever occurred and no accounts existed. A quick check of Madoff's DTC account would have shown about $24 in assets when it should have contained the billions of dollars of securities he supposedly had purchased on his client's behalf. Because the examiners incorrectly figured his account would be a combination of his broker-dealer and portfolio transactions, and it would be time-consuming and impossible to establish the difference, they never checked another potential, obviously, incriminating source of information. Then Madoff blatantly lied when Peter Lamore confronted him with the information that he claimed to have stopped trading options, despite Greenwich's record suggesting otherwise. To that, Madoff casually responded that he merely stated that he took the options trading portion out of his portfolio model and stonewalled any attempts by Lamore, literally furious during the exchange, to contradict him or pin him down. Once again, despite numerous lies and red flags, the SEC did nothing and omitted even a cursory follow-up of important issues raised. Although they left Madoff officially hanging until January of 2008, they ultimately formally closed the investigation with no finding of malfeasance. They did require that Madoff actually register as an investment advisor, a sanction that bordered on the comical based on what the SEC actually missed, during this examination. By August of 2006, Madoff had not only evaded any investigative exposure, he also was able to restore all of the funds that he had manipulated to keep his scam afloat. $262 million in loans and credit were paid back, and as the year unfolded, Madoff tapped additional sources of investment, mostly from Europe. Much of this was due to the efforts of Sonia Cohn, the owner and proprietor of a boutique Viennese banking firm known as Medici Bank, and a longtime acquaintance of Madoff's dating back to her days as a New York-based Merrill Lynch stockbroker. Cohn's various financial entities were eventually purchased by the large Italian unicredit banking firm, and her reputation by the mid-2000s was that of Austria's Woman of Wall Street, Her impeccable reputation, allowing her to steer in many billions of dollars into Madoff-controlled accounts, investments which generated many millions of dollars in commissions. Between Cohen and Houchet's Access International, the billions these firms provided during Madoff's cash crunch, when many American firms were withdrawing money, was crucial to the scheme's survival. Whether it was a final frenzy generated by the knowledge of how close he had come to exposure or the realization that his luck could not hold out forever, Bernard Madoff spent much of 2007 spending lavish sums and living a life that was wildly extravagant, even from the perspective of America's super wealthy. He purchased a $24 million jet, supposedly as a charter to be rented out, but also an aircraft he used often. He had a newly acquired $7 million yacht docked near the modest Cop Dante Riviera townhouse he bought in 2000. He continued his habit of dumping large sums of cash on his sons, disguising them as loans, as much as $5 million at a time. He gave Frank D. Pascali a 100% raise to $4 million a year, high cotton for a high school graduate. He paid his secretary, Annette Bongiorno, a 2007 salary and bonus of $627,000. He spent two summer months on the French Riviera and the Mediterranean, cruising around on his new yacht. He loaned his brother $9 million in the aftermath of Peter Madoff's son's lengthy struggle and death from leukemia. More loans were made to his niece, Shana, and son, Mark, for a purported energy startup. The entire family and many high-placed executives continued to lavishly spend on vacations, meals, clothing, and jewelry, all purchased from the most prestigiously expensive vendors and merchants, all charged to Amex cards in the name of Bernard Madoff Investment Securities. Perhaps Madoff's profligate spending emanated from the knowledge that as the year 2008 began, His cash assets totaled $5 billion after a new avalanche of money from Europe and other sources and fewer demands for redemptions. 2008 was the year that even the most astute financial analyst and expert could have never predicted. Market chaos and collapse of some of the most respected names on Wall Street and the exposure of the precarious nature of the entire American financial system itself. In March of 2008, Bear Stearns, a premier 80-year-old investment bank, saw its stock plummet from $60 a share to the $2 a share price that it was purchased for by JP Morgan Chase. The result of a balance sheet bloated with subprime mortgage securities that were grossly overvalued, without the intervention and sale facilitated by the Department of the Treasury, Bear Stearns would have simply gone bankrupt. In September, both Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch, two of America's most respected financial brands, collapsed within a matter of days. Merrill Lynch was acquired by the Bank of America. The government declined to step in to aid Lehman Brothers, which went bankrupt. Both entities also swamped with overvalued real estate and subprime mortgage securities. The next day, the Federal Reserve was forced to intervene and rescue insurer American International Group, with an eventual $185 billion, the most likely result of inaction, the failure of such banks as Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and the Bank of America, counterparties and trades with AIG. Numerous other bank failures, including the failure of the country's largest savings and loan, Washington Mutual, IndyMac Bank, and the federal takeover of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, were other milestones along the way towards the worst financial collapse since the Great Depression. What effect did this have on financial market investors? Panic. By year-end, 2008, the S&P 500 stock market index was down 33.4%. The NASDAQ 100, even worse, down 42%. This was the unforeseen financial typhoon that not even Bernie Madoff could slither his way out of. The market panic quickly spread to all of his largest investors. In October and November, Madoff was forced to cut checks for over $500 million of redemptions to Sonia Cohn. Beginning in September through November, the Fairfield-Greenwich flagship Century Fund redeemed $1.25 billion in withdrawal requests from investors. This did not include other smaller but significant redemptions from other Fairfield-Greenwich funds. By the beginning of December, Madoff was again down to a few hundred million dollars, with more redemptions inevitably coming. In fact, in the last 10 days of November, redemption requests doubled. Madoff told Frank D. Pasquale that he will no longer desperately solicit or creatively embezzle the vast sums he will need to ride out the latest storm. Instead, He told Di Pasquale to put together a list of preferred clients that they will favor and pay out before the inexorable collapse. Not everyone headed for the exit. Some viewed Madoff and his alleged 4.5% positive return throughout the market carnage of 2008 as a rock of stability in an otherwise turbulent market, René Thierry de la Ville-Houchet, plowed even more of his client's money into Madoff's coffers and all the rest of his own $50 million fortune. Madoff has already taken $250 million from Carl Shapiro in the final desperate weeks leading up to his fateful decision. Shapiro, his oldest client and benefactor, who literally got his financial career off of the ground 48 years earlier. At the time, Madoff hit him up for the money. Bernie knew Shapiro would never get it back. He had already told his wife, Ruth, to transfer $5.5 million from a brokerage account into her own personal bank account. But Bernie didn't go quietly into the night. He began threatening any of those pulling their money out with permanent banishment from his funds, especially Fairfield Greenwich, redeemers of many billions of dollars in recent months, in retrospect, a wise decision. Noel and Tucker groveled personally for Bernie, but there was little they personally could do to stop an inevitable process. On December 9, 2008, that process began. Much of what happened next is unverifiable because the sources originally describing the last days of Madoff, Incorporated were either family members who had a vested interest in maintaining a certain storyline, or Bernie Madoff himself, not exactly a credible source. Nevertheless, it is important to at least recount this version of events, if only to compare it to other eventual perspectives. On December 9th, Madoff, having already decided that the end was at hand, asked his son Mark for a list of annual bonuses to be paid out almost two months in advance of these typical payments. He also had a private meeting with his brother, Peter, in which he informed him that his scheme could no longer be funded, that he, Bernie, was a crook who had deceived investors for decades and that most likely both of them would go to jail. He also asked his brother for some time to take care of both employees and the firm's preferred customers, time that Peter, an attorney, knew was inappropriate. However, for the moment, the younger Madoff brother did not go public with these revelations. On the following morning of December 10th, Ruth Madoff entered the office, unusually without a word to other employees, including Secretary Elaine Squillari, who later learned that Madoff's wife transferred $10 million from a brokerage account to her own personal checking account. Although it was the day of the annual office Christmas party, Madoff had not scheduled any appointments. Most of the day was spent by the secretarial staff putting the finishing touches on what was always a lavish affair in 2008. The party cost the firm $30,000. Before it began, Bernie met with his sons at his own apartment. He pointedly told them that he was out of cash, had been running a Ponzi scheme for years, and most of an alleged $50 billion in assets were gone. While Andrew began sobbing, Madoff asked his sons for a week to sort out his affairs before he turned himself in. The Madoff sons eventually left the apartment, telling their chauffeur that they were going to lunch, Bernie returned to the office, the party at a local Mexican restaurant set to begin at 6 p.m. While the 200 employees began to party with frozen pomegranate margaritas, guacamole, and tacos, Bernie and his elegantly dressed wife made their entrance. Although they acted as if nothing was amiss, they did segregate themselves at the corner of the bar, avoiding interaction. When employees entered their proximity and attempted small talk, The Madoffs then moved to a table consisting of low-level staff, including the firm's chauffeurs. They were eventually joined by Peter Madoff and his daughter Shana. His wife Marion did not attend, supposedly suffering from a headache. The two Madoff sons never appeared, an absence noted by some of the employees, although amidst the revelry, this detail went mostly unnoticed. In fact, Mark and Andy Madoff spent the afternoon conferring with an attorney, Martin Flumenbaum who informed them that they had no choice but to contact government officials and turn in their father immediately. That evening, Flumenbaum got in touch with the SEC, FBI, and U.S. Attorney's Office, even the feds taken aback by the lawyer's allegations. When informed of the fraud and the amount involved, one SEC attorney responded by saying, Did you say millions or billions? This official shock was consistent with the reaction during the broadcast of this headline when CNBC's Michelle Caruso Cabrera commented live on the air, If you are working on a trading desk, stop what you are doing before you walk out the door and clean your desk out for the day. Bernie Madoff has been arrested. Although the initial news reports recounted the information that Bernie Madoff alone was responsible for both the fraud and he alone had knowledge of this malfeasance, skepticism immediately ensued. Madoff and his wife did themselves no favors in the court of public opinion when it was discovered that shortly after his arrest, he and his wife sent over $1 million worth of watches and expensive jewelry to Peter, Mark, and Andy Madoff and lesser valuables to other relatives. Later, accounts of a half-hearted suicide attempt by the couple in which they claimed to have taken excessive amounts of tranquilizers only to wake up the next morning were greeted by derision as an attempt to generate sympathy and cover up blatant impropriety. Bernie's attempt to prematurely pay out annual bonuses was stopped when the FBI discovered signed checks totaling $173 million in Madoff's desk, checks that were never distributed with 14,000 total investors, some of whom, because they were involved with feeder funds like those administered by Sidney Chase or Ezra Merkin, had no idea that they were even involved with Madoff. Anxiety turned to panic when the trustee appointed by a federal judge, Irving Picard, explained in February of 2009 that any of the transactions listed in investors' accounts were most likely completely fictitious and Madoff had not engaged in any market activity for at least 14 years. This meant that the likelihood of recovering any funds for swindled participants would be much more difficult. Madoff's operation nothing more than a pure Ponzi scheme with no assets left. This also reflected on such employees as Peter Madoff and Frank D. Pascali. Any operations-oriented employees must have known that no securities were being held or even existed, and any statements produced had to be complete fabrications. Loans secured with dubious promissory notes as the only collateral were issued to both Madoff sons, totaling $30 million. One Madoff son, Mark, despite such largesse, technically didn't even work for the securities firm instead supposedly involved with Shana Madoff in an energy concern that restored old oil rigs and resold them to small oil companies. Andrew supposedly ran the stock trading portion of Madoff's legitimate broker-dealership, but even Madoff himself believed that they were terribly entitled, didn't contribute much, especially in light of their stunning compensation. With the announcement of the existence of these loans, Irving Picard also vowed to recover these funds, which he considered inappropriate compensation. The fallout from Madoff's swindle was immediate. In the initial chaos, thousands of investors attempted to call the Madoff offices. For a while, the secretarial staff took messages, but eventually resorted to telling irate customers that no one was available. The fax machines clattered endlessly with redemption requests for money that either was gone or had not existed to begin with. Eventually, it became clear that at the very least, in the short term, any sums invested with Madoff were inaccessible and probably gone forever. Investors large and small were traumatized, many retirees having invested their entire life savings. Some found it impossible to cope with what had happened. On the evening of December 22, 2008, Rene de la Ville locked his office door, took a massive amount of sleeping pills, slit his wrists and biceps with a box cutter, and bled to death. He had lost his own fifty million dollar fortune, as well as 1.4 billion of his client's money, could not even make payroll or the rent on his office, but worse for Ville Houchet, he said in a note to his brother that he could not stand the shame of what he felt was his betrayal of his investors, many of whom he considered close friends. His partner, Patrick Lettay, 69, also lost everything, maintained that he would be forced to live on his French social security payments, and was charged in France with the crime of breach of trust, although this was eventually dropped. As of 2023, litigation involving both Lettay and the De La Villehoucher estate was still ongoing, mostly around the issues of due diligence. If there were many deeply distraught and angry investors, initially there was one individual who was jubilant. When he initially heard the news of Madoff's demise, Harry Markopoulos was disappointed that he was never able to expose Bernie's fraud. But he initially did take solace in the fact that he was right all along. But then Markopoulos' quirky mind began to worry that the SEC might try to destroy any record of his interaction with the agency and their failure to act. The whistleblower always skeptical that the SEC in action was possibly more sinister than mere incompetence. He figured that the best way to avert any attempts to silence him would be to get his story into the public domain as quickly as possible. Markopolis successfully got the attention of the financial world in the best, most direct way imaginable. The Wall Street Journal featured a front-page story about his nine-year quest, even including the characteristic drawing of an article subject. Markopolis's allegations were confirmed by SEC Chairman Christopher Cox, who left office at the end of George W. Bush's presidency in 2009. These revelations set off a firestorm of criticism from the public, especially investors, the press, and even in Congress, which immediately launched an investigation. Public cynicism only increased when it was revealed that Madoff and his firm had donated or spent close to a million dollars on campaign contributions and lobbyists, most of the money going to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and a lobbyist specializing in financial services, congressional issues. Accounts of New York Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader who frequently weighed in on issues of great importance to Wall Street, personally meeting with Madoff and the disgraced financier's lipstick building offices to pick up checks sent any of Madoff's political donation recipients scurrying with announcements that they would donate the money to charity. After continuous bad publicity, in March of 2009, the DSCC finally agreed to turn its $100,000 contribution over to the Madoff Victims Compensation Fund. Perhaps in an attempt to buttress his claim that he and he alone was responsible for the fraud, Bernie Madoff pled guilty in federal court on March 12, 2009. The federal judge in the case, Denny Chin, revoked his bail, sent him to jail to await sentencing. But if the Madoffs thought that this development would spare them from additional civil and criminal scrutiny, they were mistaken. Additionally, many of Bernie's top investors were sued by the SEC or Trustee Picard. Walter Noel of Fairfield Greenwich, Stanley Chase, Ezra Merkin, and Jeffrey Pacauer were all immediate targets of civil actions. The Austrian government seized Sonia Cohn's Medici Bank, despite her claim of being victimized by Madoff as well. Having allegedly received $40 million in commissions, she dropped out of the financial world. Although subject of a lawsuit from Irving Picard, the suit was tossed out in 2013. In 2017, one of her feeder funds did eventually agree to a $687 million payment to the victim's fund. On June 29, 2009, Madoff's formal sentencing took place in a New York City federal courthouse. For hours, victims were able to take a few moments and explain exactly how Madoff's actions had destroyed their lives many indicating that they were subjected to complete poverty, unable to even afford gas money or groceries, some even claiming they were now reduced to scavenging and dumpsters. But most of all, Madoff's investors were angry and demanded justice, sometimes in practically biblical terms. Marcia Fitzmaurice's statement was read by her husband, Tom, so distraught she felt unable to address the court. I cry every day when I see the look of pain and despair in my husband's eyes. I cry for the life we once had before that monster took it away. Your wife, rightfully so, has been vilified and shunned by her friends in the community. You have left your children a legacy of shame. I have a marriage made in heaven. You have a marriage made in hell. And that is where you, Mr. Madoff, are going to return. May God spare you no mercy. Given a chance to address the court, Madoff fell back on the concept that he only meant to buy himself some time so that he could keep his venture afloat, never intending to deceive so many people, calling his deceit a tragic mistake. Judge Chin was not swayed. He ignored Madoff's attorney's request for a 12-year sentence. He called the fraud staggering, over 20 years in length, a massive breach of trust and crimes that were extraordinarily evil. At the conclusion of his remarks, Denny Chin sentenced Madoff to 150 years in jail, clearly a life sentence at Madoff's age, an edict that was greeted with applause. Less than a year after Madoff's arrest, 67-year-old financier Jeffrey Pacauer's wife found him dead in the bottom of his Palm Beach, Florida swimming pool. In December of 2010, Pacauer's wife, and executor of his estate, agreed to forfeit $7.2 billion into the Madoff Victims Fund. From prison, Bernie Madoff made the allegation that Picower knew that he was running a Ponzi scheme and deliberately extracted many billions more than the $620 million in cash and securities he invested. The $7.2 billion figure stemmed from the amount of money Picower netted from Bernie over the years, by far the most received by any client and the largest forfeiture in U.S. history. Representatives of Picower's estate denied the allegations. In 2011, Picower's wife Barbara set up a new foundation with an endowment of $1.2 billion. By 2018, this foundation, the JPB Foundation, was worth over $3.7 billion, the 24th largest foundation in the U.S., On December 11, 2010, on the second anniversary of his father's arrest, Mark Madoff committed suicide by hanging himself from his apartment ceiling with a dog leash. At the time of his death, he was the subject of nine federal lawsuits, including suits brought by trustee Picard. His wife had already changed her and their children's last name to Morgan. Unlike Andrew, he seemed deeply sensitive to allegations that he knew about the fraud his body was discovered by his stepfather-in-law when he rushed to the apartment after Mark's wife received some alarming emails while vacationing in Florida. Madoff's 22-month-old son and pet dog were left alone in the apartment. This suicide did not stop the relentless Picard, who then filed suits against Mark's ex-wife and current spouse to recover funds deemed ill-gotten gains. There was no funeral, just a cremation, an informal memorial from which Ruth Madoff was barred by her daughter-in-law. In In 2011, perhaps thinking that a good offense is the best defense, Andrew, his fiancée Catherine Hooper, and Ruth Madoff cooperated on a ghost-written memoir about their collective experiences dealing with the Madoff scandal, demonstrating the remarkable power of America's publicity and publishing machinery. Ruth and Andrew Madoff were extensively interviewed on 60 Minutes, answering mostly softballs in a very benign, non-confrontational interview. Confronted with her son's anecdote about sending valuable watches and jewelry worth a million dollars to Andrew and relatives after Bernie's arrest, Ruth's succinct and supposedly exculpatory response was that impulsively both she and her husband were going to kill themselves and she felt her family would want these keepsakes. There was no follow-up question, asking if she understood that such behavior, regardless of what she and Bernie intended to do to themselves, was specifically proscribed by the conditions of Madoff's bail agreement that forbade any transfer or disposal of assets. Asked about millions of dollars of transfers from brokerage accounts to her own personal checking account only hours before the fraud's collapse, her glib response was that Bernie moved money in and out of accounts all of the time. Again, there was no follow-up question, asking for specifics about exactly when Madoff and his wife withdrew money from brokerage accounts and transfer them to her personal accounts, behavior that if frequent might actually implicate her even further. There were no questions about Ruth applying for and receiving in January of 2008 official Florida homestead certification protecting that state's Madoff home from seizure as a result of litigation. Practically laughable was Andrew's assertion that when Bernie came clean at the Madoff apartment with his two sons, the definition of a Ponzi scheme had to be explained to Ruth, who supposedly did not understand what that was. This from the daughter of a professional accountant, a former bookkeeper herself and an individual who hobnobbed for decades with some of the most sophisticated financial minds on Wall Street in an era where numerous high-level Ponzi schemes were unmasked throughout the 2000s on a frequent basis. Andrew stuck to his story, stating that he was at arm's length from the entire investment management operation. But by now, the common belief for the entire Madoff family, and certainly for the two sons, was that if they didn't know it, it was because they didn't want to know. Andrew easily would have been able to discern the business as a fraud. He was an investor himself who should have received quarterly statements that would have contained specific securities held in his account. He easily could have verified if those trades were actually transacted through the broker dealership, an entity he was supposedly supervising. Based on subsequent court filings, it was clear that trustee Picard did not believe Andrew or his brother were innocent bystanders either. On September 3, 2014, Andrew Madoff died from leukemia, first diagnosed and treated in 2003. Only weeks earlier, Irving Picard filed an amended lawsuit against Andrew and his brother Mark's estate, contending that both Madoff's sons manufactured accounts with fictitious amounts to further their purchase of expensive Manhattan homes. Citing testimony from a cooperating Frank Pascali, Picard also alleged that the two brothers helped delete incriminating emails during a 2005 SEC inquiry. One email, cited publicly, was particularly incriminating. In it, Andrew Madoff emailed his brother and stated, quote, I spoke with Dad, who conferred with Danny, Dan Von Venture, a Madoff investment management employee, later convicted and imprisoned. Apparently, everything is in balance, so we don't need to worry, unquote although Andrew's attorney denied the allegations. Andrew died before this matter could be adjudicated. In 2017, Picard agreed to a settlement with the Sons' Estates and Wives for a total of $23 million. Andrew and Mark's Estates were left with $2 and $1.75 million, respectively. Ruth Madoff, in 2009 with her husband, had already agreed to forfeit all but $2.5 million of assets, these assets totaling approximately $250 million in cash, investments, real estate, and property. Although this settlement was roundly criticized publicly, it did save the trustee a massive litigation headache and allowed him to quickly turn his attention to other benefactors of Madoff's scheme. Charged criminally, J.P. Morgan Bank, in 2014, settled with the federal government for several billion dollars in fines, never once inquiring as to what exactly Bernie Madoff was doing depositing and withdrawing many billions of dollars in cash in a simple commercial checking account. Shortly thereafter, Bernie Madoff, in interviews, publicly stated that J.P. Morgan knew that something was wrong with both his and Norman Levy's accounts, but that the relationship was too profitable to sever. An investor lawsuit seeking to hold J.P. Morgan liable for losses sustained by Madoff investors was dismissed in 2016. Several Madoff employees were prosecuted criminally for their actions during the scam. The most prominent was Peter Madoff, who pled guilty in June of 2012 to several charges related to financial fraud, receiving a 10-year jail term. He, his wife Marion, and his daughter Shana were forced to forfeit many millions of dollars in assets. Released from jail in 2020, he lives in West Palm Beach, Florida, presumably far away from his brother's former posh stomping grounds. His daughter Shana currently operates a yoga studio. In August of 2009, Frank DiPascali pled guilty to 10 charges involving securities fraud. He cooperated extensively with the government, even serving as the star witness against five back-office Madoff employees who were prosecuted, including Dan Bonventure and Annette Bongiorno. All five were convicted, subjected to forfeiture laws, and given prison terms ranging from two and a half to ten years Despite her claims that she was also deceived by Madoff, Annette Bongiorno's sentencing judge lectured her that even if she didn't know specifically of Madoff's crimes, she should have been able to recognize that his returns were implausible. One wonders why the same prosecutorial logic was not applied to Bernie's immediate family members, who were never charged criminally. Stanley Chase died in 2010 from a long-term illness. His foundation had already collapsed in the immediate wake of the Madoff fraud and scandal. His estate settled with Irving Picard in 2016 for $277 million, ostensibly the entirety of the estate and his wife's net worth at the time. Ezra Merkin eventually coughed up over $600 million settling civil suits with both the New York state government and Irving Picard, although he was never charged criminally despite being warned as early as 1992 that Madoff was not legitimate. He ignored such warnings. Perkin became a pariah in the New York nonprofit world and had to sell his art collection. However, today he remains a very wealthy man. His colleague, Eli Wiesel, lost his entire foundation's assets, over $15 million, as well as other funds invested in the fraud. Carl Shapiro was extensively investigated for criminal involvement with Bernie Madoff in the swindle, but never charged. His family collectively agreed to forfeit $625 million to the victim's fund. In 2010, the settlement including Shapiro's son-in-law and Madoff Palm Beach investment recruiter Robert Jaffe neither officially admitted wrongdoing. Shapiro died in 2021, aged 108. In February of 2009, Harry Markopoulos testified explosively before Congress, testimony that held up the SEC to national scorn in front of the entire U.S. business community. The whistleblower especially singled out Megan Chung, who had already left the SEC in September of 2008. Chung apparently never worked in the securities industry again. Markopoulos wrote a best-selling book wrote a wave of media popularity, but ultimately left the business of investment management and Wall Street. Today, he's a Massachusetts-based freelance forensic accountant who specializes in analyzing accounting, securities, and Ponzi scheme fraud. In June of 2019, Irving Picard reached agreement with Ruth Madoff over any and all additional forfeiture claims. Her original deal was with federal prosecutors and Picard sought an additional $44.8 million, but conceding that such a figure was unrealistic, he settled for 250000 in cash and $344,000 in trusts set up for Ruth's grandchildren. She must also forfeit any remaining assets upon her death and must report any personal transaction totaling over $100, this to ensure that she does not clandestinely tap some hidden stash of money. Quite a fall from grace for a woman who once averaged $60,000 a month in personal expenditures. She currently lives in a $3.8 million Greenwich, Connecticut waterfront mansion owned by Susan Elkin, Mark Madoff's first wife, and her husband, businessman Richard Elkin. Elkin was actually sued by Irving Picard in 2012 for a Madoff clawback, but settled out of court. Upon sentencing, Bernie Madoff was sent to the Federal Correctional Institution at Butner, North Carolina. He occasionally granted interviews that were mostly self-serving, with Madoff blaming his behavior on the culture of Wall Street or getting in over his head on something he never meant to pursue on a long-term basis. He expressed exasperation with his clients, who he labeled as greedy, especially the Big Four, three of whom were now dead Although he continued to correspond with his wife, his two sons allegedly never spoke to him again after he confessed his role in the fraud, one of few developments in his life that actually seemed to disturb him. Although initially accounts of him being assaulted in prison circulated in the media, he eventually referred to Butner as a relatively pleasant place, akin to a college campus, his main objection to prison, the sheer boredom it entailed. Already diagnosed with cardiovascular and kidney disease upon his incarceration, Madoff's ailments only worsened over time. Transferred to the Federal Medical Center in Butner, a facility for patients with serious chronic illness, Madoff died there on April 14, 2021, and was cremated in Durham, North Carolina. By December 2022, about $14 billion had been recovered and distributed by the various government entities charged with such a recovery of Madoff-related money. This constituted about 70% of the original investments to Madoff, an extraordinary amount recovered in a Ponzi scheme, which usually leaves victims with nothing and no means of recovery. Several billions more will probably be dispersed in the near future. Still, when he died... There was no forgiveness for the pain and damage that Bernie Madoff caused during his financial career. In fact, the remnants of his family have specifically refused to accept his cremated remains. Today, they sit unclaimed in a lawyer's office in North Carolina, the former Wall Street big shot, and supposed financial wizard, still the ultimate industry outcast. (laughs) Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Bernie Madoff. Information for this podcast came from the books The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff, and the Death of Trust by Diana Enriquez. Betrayal, The Life and Lies of Bernie Madoff by Andrew Kurtzman. And Madoff with the Money by Jerry Oppenheimer. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.